this week on the show we cover four months of BSD, self-hosted calendar and address book tutorial, a how to ban scanners IPs from open SMTP logs, a self-hosted Git page, a Bastille template example, very easy, blocking ads, restricting Nginx access by geographical location on FreeBSD and more. This week's episode packed full with tutorials on BSD now. BSD Now, episode 520, four months BSD. Recorded on the 19th of July, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. This title sounds a bit more like a, you know, I'm getting sentenced to something, but I could see worse things than having four months of BSD as a sentence, right? Uh, You've been sentenced to four months of BSD, but you have to use, you have to use Skype and Photoshop every day. (laughs) Yeah, think about that. Mm, That's really tough. Okay, so let's just jump into that. Okay. So first up, we have the title article of the show, and it is on Dante's blog, which is danterobinson.dev. I wonder if they're a software developer. And it's four months of BSD, and Dante writes, Over the past four months, I've been running various BSDs on my daily machine, and I have to say I love it. I'm coming from Gentoo Linux as a bit of a background, and I've been using Linux for about five years full-time now, so I'm writing with a decent amount of Unix-like experience. This will mostly be a discussion comparing BSD to Linux, and what I like and dislike about the various BSDs by itself. For those looking for a TLDR, I'll be sticking with OpenBSD for the time being, and if something doesn't work out, I'll be looking to move back to FreeBSD or Gentoo. I think FreeBSD is amazing, and the changes over Linux are worth making the switch for. If you're currently running macOS or Windows, you may be thinking you need to learn Linux before trying out BSD. This is not the case at all. It more or less depends on how much work you are willing to put into switching. BSD install process is not complex, but it is more hands-on, and as someone who may be less tech literate than others using a TUI, terminal user interface, or a CLI, command line interface, based installers may seem scary. They're not. Don't be afraid of these things. I would recommend trying FreeBSD as as opposed to something like Ubuntu, as FreeBSD can do 99% of what Linux can do, and it is a lightsaber OS with less garbage. Oh, I I did did that. I'm sorry. FreeBSD can do 99% of what Linux can do, and it is a lighter OS with less... <laughs> when did I say lightsaber? It's very wide, this blog. On a wide screen, you skip lines did, somehow. Where did I get saber from? It's too much Star Wars. <laughs> no Star <clears throat> FreeBSD can do 99% of what Linux can do, and is a lighter OS with less, with less garbage, like SystemD or Snap packages. FreeBSD has a great write-up on how to install from scratch with pictures, as well as the command line guide for basic commands and how to install a desktop interface, as you have many options unlike macOS or Windows. You can find the handbook here, and there's a link to the handbook. Why does any of this matter? This is a great question, and the short answer is that it probably doesn't. 
if you are someone who just uses your computer and doesn't care about how it works, then it probably isn't going to matter. If you are actively looking to improve your development environment, even macOS is a good option over Windows as it comes with an actual shell, unlike Windows command line. If you're starting to say to yourself, I want to run something open source that not only myself, but others can audit the code and make sure it's safe, then you're starting to look into Linux and BSD. What is more important is does your current OS do what you want it to do? If not, then you probably don't need to change. If you're looking to move to all open source software, maybe try using applications on your OS first, like apps like uh, Godot, Krita, KDN Live, LibreOffice are available for many different operating systems. If these tools aren't going to work for you, your chances are BSD or Linux won't either. I just like to, to counteract that immediately in line. I've never used any of these tools and it's fine to use for BSD. Depends on what you use on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, no. I, I don't know. Never use any of these. Um, why BSD over Linux? Linux has all these modern hip applications and all these different package management systems. So many distros choose distros to choose from. Why even consider BSD? Well, the issue with distros on Linux isn't that is that they aren't really doing anything. No offense, devs. Most distros are merely a fork of something else. For example, Debian and Ubuntu both have the same package manager. Both work in very similar ways. So where is the difference? The packages that come pre-installed on the disco can range from a different desktop environment to pre-installed packages configs on the machine right after use, uh, right after install. Not all Linux distros are made this way, but the majority of them are. So why would you choose to install one over the other? Well, the whole point in the creator's minds is that it makes everything work the way you want it to out of the box. For 80 to 90%, that's probably not the case though, which basically makes every distro a waste of not only the creator's time, but also adds to the complexity of the space. So what's the difference with the Linux distros that aren't forks? These distros actually develop something rather than a man-paid manager package repo. These distros have new package managers, new init systems, and in some cases like Gen2, completely different ways of doing things from the majority. Here's a full list of Linux distros you will probably... This can't be a full list. Um, <laughs> here's a full list of Linux distros. You will notice a majority fork from another project, but even still there are decent maybe 10%-ish which stand alone without distro forks. Even with the new package manager, most of these distros are still the same thing. They ha have designed a new package management system which might be easier to use, or they might have some features like the AUR. However, maybe only 1% of distros are actually doing something unique. Gen2, Bedrock, KISS, Nix, Chimera, and maybe even Void. These guys are using the Linux kernel like other distros, but are actually different. Maybe that means they are straying from the GNU code base using a new C library and the list goes on. If you're not looking at these distros, the experience you will have on Linux is going to be mostly the same. Even something like Fedora, Red Hat based, to Mint, Debian based is going to feel like the same thing. Not all forks are useless, some like Pop! OS for example makes their, are making their own desktop which is cool. Linux is very confusing but the first question everyone asks, what distro do I install? There's even guides based on a quick search, BSD doesn't have this. Now. Then there's a link to the list of BSD operating systems, which is quite long. Um, now that may seem like a lot, but really there are only four main BSDs that come up in conversation. You may not have even heard of any besides the largest one, FreeBSD. So what's the difference? FreeBSD is designed to run everything like Linux does and can even emulate Linux. This is more your mainstream BSD, uh, where over 70% answered to a survey in 2005 saying they use FreeBSD. That's quite an old survey. Um, this is probably where most users want to be as everything is most likely to work. OpenBSD is more based around security, of course, but it's not just 
that it's more code correctness. I personally like the goals of this project. However, you encounter many issues that will probably need to fix yourself. And some software doesn't even work that may work on other BSDs, for example. NetBSD's focus is around bringing BSD to every possible platform. This is probably not what you think. It doesn't mean the latest GPUs and stuff, but more in the sense of architectures. For example, PowerPC or ARM, and those are just two minor, two minor platforms in the list of platforms they feel support, so check out their site. It's incredible, honestly. If you had a Power Mac, then you know a lot of Linux distros drop support for it, and you might be worried FreeBSD will drop support. NetBSD makes this a very compelling option. The downside is the dev team is focused on many platforms um, without enough devs, so it's tough to add modern support for things or even bug fixes. Dragonfly BSD main focus is speed. The hardware is really lacking. It may not work for you at the time of writing, at least however, it's really cool just to read their homepage. We'll tell you so much about what is different. Huh. Sorry, I'm scrolling around to see what to not read. Packages and links come from your main distro repo, but not just that. You then need to trust other random people on the internet when using things like the AUR or even adding a new repo to your package manager because you can't find that package you need or want. This can be a huge security risk, and BSD, you don't need to do any of that. People praise the AUR, but it's not that special when you think about it, and I've used Arch for over a year. BSD's port system can not only download binaries from a trusted source for your packages, but it also get direct access to the source code for those packages to compile them natively in your local ports tree. I'll admit it's not as nice as Gentoo's portage, as in the package manager doesn't directly support building the packages, and they'll need to be done manually like 99% of other Linux distros. FreeBSD does have a tool called Putrier, which compiles lots of ports for you in one command with the options you want. So you can manage ports. People approved by that BSD. Is it as good as the AUR? In terms of security, it destroys it. In terms of total available packages, FreeBSD is your best bet at around half the packages in the AUR. You are more than welcome to join the ports team to manage packages you want to bring to BSD. This basically means it has the same capabilities of the AUR. The only real difference being the packages aren't supported yet because people aren't maintaining them. So stuff hasn't been ported yet. Recommendations. I've skipped some of this article. You should go read it. Um, I would personally recommend running any servers you can on OpenBSD just for the added security benefits as well as the smaller code base. Instead of following my security guide for Linux, I think just using OpenBSD is a better option. In terms of uh, desktop, OpenBSD is actually very capable despite being focused heavily around security. No, it's not going to be as smooth or elegant as a workstation designed OS like macOS, and you'll need to make some tweaks to config files for Unveil so your browser can read files on your computer to, say, upload things. You also have to do this in macOS. You have to allow applications access to your downloads folder, so it's not super different. OpenBSD has support for almost everything you may need. It's not perfect, but most users should be able to live with it. Krita, KDN Live, LibreOffice, Godot all exist in the OpenBSD all exist in the portrait for OpenBSD and work fine, meaning you can edit and videos and photos, make games, and even do office work without issues. For programming, you have NeoVim and Genie. Not all NeoVim plugins work, so you most likely need to make your own configuration file. Things like React or Next.js won't work without tweaking it. And even if you do tweak the code to run, people have reported auto-refresh functions not working. OpenBSD will more or less have to see if it will work with for you. If OpenBSD doesn't work, then I would next recommend FreeBSD before going to Linux. FreeBSD has the same ports as mentioned, but does include React and Next.js support working out of the box, as well as a port for VS Code. Auto refresh still doesn't work without messing around with FS Watchmon or by using Webpack to work with React's auto refresh. 
FreeBSD offers many more ports and will be easier to use than OpenBSD in terms of not needing to try to get so many things working manually. If you do play games, I recommend going with Windows or Linux, but if you can live with FreeBSD's gaming, then it's your next best choice. At the end of the day, the support for applications and games comes down to us, the people. If you want gaming on BSD, you need to run BSD and ask for game support from Steam. Otherwise, if you are still playing on Linux, why would they care? They won't lose you as a customer. They don't care what platform you're on. This is a lot of different things if we want proper Reactor Next.js working now support. We need to ask for it or help program it ourselves and upload the pull request. If you want to try BSD but can't because something doesn't work, most likely it's not going to work unless someone, you, does something about it. Thanks, Dante. Mm-hmm. I like the you know arguments and uh, own experiences that a lot of people hopefully share. Yeah, great. So this next item is very practical, uh, going about self-hosting your own calendar and address book. And this is over at Tom Fatigue. We, uh, in the first sentence, they list the uh, separate article about self-hosting email, which they did first. And this one is the next best thing after that, right? Self-hosting a calendar and address book, which is this uh, article about. So once you have that self-hosted email up and running, you may want to add the calendar and address book features to your service bag. Nowadays, the standard protocols regarding those subjects are CalDAV and CardDAV. I decided to go with Baycal, the dedicated CalDAV and CardDAV server based on the Sabre slash DAV framework, the same framework used in Nextcloud DAV service as far as they know. It relies on PHP and is available as a package on OpenBSD. So to quote Baycal's homepage, <clears throat> Baycal is a lightweight call and card dev server it offers an extensive web interface with easy management of users address books and calendars it is fast and simple to install and only needs a basic php capable server the data can be stored in a mysql or an sql like database unquote okay so now that we know what this is set up the environment so you do package add uh, by call php pdo underscore sql light uh, they use 8.0 in this one i'm fairly sure that also works in Newer version or other operating systems can use the same or similar packages. Then they configure PHP to run as a standalone intruded uh, daemon, basically uh, creating a var ww etc directory, copying hosts and resolve conf into it, then making a symlink uh, to the PHP 8 sample ini files. Ah, okay, so that how they do that. Oh, good. Then they edit those and make a couple changes, like setting the error lock to syslog and maybe setting also the local time zone, uh, I would guess. They don't do that here, but there's plenty of other options in there. Then they start, uh, they first enable PHP 8 FPM and then start that service. And they like to have PHP FPM logging via syslog because this is easier to manage for them, but it's not a must-have. They also didn't have to tweak the PHP ini file. Ah, okay. Because the default suits their needs, their mileage may vary, of course. Configure HTTPD to expose the service. Here, Baikal is using a dedicated HTTP path there are also well-known URIs that help DAV clients to configure themselves automatically. So they provide the necessary sections for that HTTPD and describe it a little bit further down. And next, they configure RelayD. In their particular case, and for some reason, they don't have HTTPD listening on a public IP, but use RelayD. So that's why there's not nothing special uh, here except that you must forward the proper HTTP header to HTTPD to have a fully encrypted experience and they show how to do that in the relay conf, the three little lines then there's the configuration about Baikal themselves or itself 
uh, to do, uh, set the service time zone, enable the CalDAV and CardDAV services. Yeah, it would be nice to actually have a calendar that knows which time zone it is, right? Um, for synchronization and calendar meetings and stuff. Uh, configure the admin password and set the SQLite file path as well. So now Baikal is installed and its database properly configured. For security reasons, this installation wizard is now disabled. Okay, fairly easy. And then you can now click on the Start Using Baikal button, which directs the web browser to the hostname slash Baikal slash admin, where you can create the users, set up passwords, and check the calendar and address book options. Okay, not too bad. Then there's a section about configuring the DAV clients. Uh, where you can say uh, set up the iOS calendar and contacts app with auto discover to see the proper service paths and simply add a new Cal and card dev account specifying the domain name and credentials that you use. Okay. Uh, Thunderbird with tbsync and dav-tbsync extensions are also able to access both calendars and address books. So add a new CalDev and CardDev account there as well, specifying the domain and credentials. Then they have a section about migrating from Nextcloud when you are coming from that. So they were using Nextcloud earlier, uh, but now they move and copy their data to Baikal once. That's an optional step, of course, but they also show how to do that. And uh, last but not least, from there, dev clients will synchronize with Baikal, get the historical data, and start updating them between, or been using this for a couple of weeks now, and so far everything works perfectly okay. Same user experience than using Nextcloud. And like Hal said, affirmative, Dave, I read you. Ooh, okay, that's nice reference to the movie. Okay, that's your own hosted calendar and address book on OpenBSD. Okay, now it's time for the news roundup. And first in the news roundup, we have a blog post by Celine at dataswamp.org. And Celine is writing about ban scanners IPs from open SMTP logs. If you are an open BSD running an open SMTP server, you may want to ban IPs used by bots trying to brute force logins. OpenBSD doesn't have fail to ban, fail to ban available in packages. An SSH guard isn't extensible enough to support multi-line multi log format used by OpenSMTP. Here is a short script that looks for authentication failures in var mail mail log, and it'll add IPs into the PF table bot after too many failed logins. Add this rule to your PF configuration, block in quick on egress from bot to any, where bot is a table. This will block any connection from banned IPs on all ports, not only SNMTP. I see no reason to allow them to try other doors. Write the following content in, and you might lock yourself out like this. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> if only that is in the config file. No. Yeah, yeah. So, like, if your if your own machine is the one spanning this, you spanning this, you could lock out SSH with this rule. <laughs> Easy enough, uh, I, yeah, I, with a quick I, I rule. I don't know if this is a problem. It's, it's only just me thinking about it. Anyway, write the following content in an executable file. This could be user local bin ban SMTP, D, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, there's a shell script. It uses awk to figure out stuff, and then it mm -hmm. runs uh, pfctl-t to add um, a rule to bot with an expire rule, and it expires after five days. Yeah, okay, so no SSH for five days. This parses the mail log file, so by default, it has a rotation every day. You could adapt the script to your log rotation policy to match what you want. 
Users failing with perm fail are banned after some tries configurable with dollar tries. I've added support for an ignore list to avoid blocking yourself out. There we go. See, Celine's smarter than us. Uh, just add IP addresses and ETC mail uh, ignore.txt. Finally, uh. banned IPs are unbanned after five days. After five days, you can change it using the variable expire days. Um, now, edit the cron tab. You want to run the script at least every hour and get a log of that fails. This cron job will run every hour at a random minute, defined each time cron D starts, so it stays consistent for a while. The periodicity may depend on the number of number of scanned your email server receives and the log size versus CPU power. This would be better to have an integrated banning system supporting multiple log files, daemons such as fail to ban, but in the current state, it's not possible. The script is fast, simple, and extensible and does the job. Thanks, Celine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're full of how-tos and how to get better in your own service departments. Uh, this one is no different about self-hosted Git page with Stagit featuring Ed, the standard editor. So yeah, we're also good for a nice historic ride here. Um, this one is a follow-up to their earlier blog post, how, to up, how they update their own website. And uh, if you work on one or more personal software projects as a hobby, chances are you are using Git, with all the perils included. To publish your project online, you may be using a website like GitHub or perhaps a more open source friendly alternative such as GitLab or SourceHut. But have you considered uh, hosting your repositories and serving them via web pages on your personal server? In this post, I'm going to show you how to do it in the usual minimalist and how not using what I do not understand style. You can see the final result in their own Git pages linked from the article. The scripts and other files they use uh, set up and are accessible in a separate link. Okay. So hosting Git repos on your own server. This step is quite simple, and you can just follow uh, Roman Zolotarev's tutorial, another link, uh, like they did, adapting the first few steps to your operating system if you're not running OpenBSD. So summing it up, first create a dedicated Git account on your server, second add your public SSH key to the authorized keys file, and third initialize a Git repo on your server with Git in its repository name, and fourth, clone it via SSH with git clone git add server colon repository. And you're done. If you want to use multiple remotes, for example, your private server in GitHub, you can do so by adding a publish only URL with git remote set URL dash dash add dash dash push origin URL. Okay, so where is Stagit coming in? Ah, here. The tool I use to serve my git repositories as static web pages is Stagit. It is very easy to describe what Stagit does. Running it on a Git repository produces some directories with a bunch of HTML files that you can simply move to your WW hosting directory. After generating the pages, you can personalize them by copying your logo, fav icon, or CSS style sheet. Yeah, the hours just configuring those are endless. <clears throat> you can just use Stagit index to generate an index page for your repo. Since everything consists of HTML files, you can simply edit them to personalize your Git pages even further, and below you'll see some examples. But you definitely do not want to do this by hand every time to, if you push a commit. Since the pages Stagit generates are static, they do not update automatically. You'll have to run Stagit again every time. You can automate this, for example, by running Stagit periodically, cron, but there's an easier way, git hooks. They describe how to do that in the next section. And they also describe their full setup that they have here. 
Um, simply, uh, oh, they fill a couple of variables at the beginning of the script, like author name and repo name and such. Then they say the basic stag it, use it, usage is, um, the first thing you want to do is set up some basic information in the owner and URL files that Stagit is going to use. The hook is run in the repo directory, so it's not necessary to specify a full path. Okay. Then you do some removement of the .hdir directory and then make dir a base dir. To make the repo do a clonable by anyone from the same URL used to view it, we need to copy the whole directory to the www directory we have just created. Okay. And finally, run Stagit after that. Okay, bells and whistles. They like Stagit's simplicity, but there are a couple of things that I want to add or change. They would like every page to show a simple footer at the bottom of each page. Okay. They would also like to have a download button so that people who don't use Git can still download their files. This makes sense, especially for those repos that are mostly documents, such as lecture notes or FMC tutorials. Hmm, I'm clicking on lecture notes uh, for later. I would like to convert readme.md files to HTML as well. Okay. So there's a bit more. If I were calling Stagit by hand after each git push, I could simply make these changes with a text editor. But I want to automate this. How can we edit files in a shell script? I know, I know. Enter Ed, the standard editor. Ed is a line text editor initially released with Unix version 1. Well, you could also automate VI with here documents, but yeah. Uh, I'm going to talk about it more extensively in the next episode of my man page reading club series without going into detail. They have a man page reading club? That's yeah, I want to read Conager on that. Cool. Very fun. Um, I would start with the yes man page because that's very short, but that's just me. Um, without going into detail, Ed does not show you the text you are editing in a two dimensional window. Instead, it offers you a command line prompt that you can use to run editing commands such as A to add text or P to print one or more lines of the file. And they go a little bit deeper into how to do that. So if you haven't read Add Mastery, then this is a fairly good intro. Um, looking at the conclusions back at the bottom, Stagit is the perfect minimalist tool to publish your Git repo with a simple static web interface. It requires nothing more than an HTTPD server or HTTP server capable of serving HTML files. Static files are also very simple to customize and tune to your needs. I have wanted to make this post for quite some time now, mainly as an excuse to clean up any documents of my uh, and document my scripts. I finally had some time to work on this, even if scattered around multiple days. As always, I've tried but failed to keep my post short. I'm too eager to explain everything I know as clearly as possible. I hope you enjoyed or found it useful. If you have questions or comments, feel free to send me an email. That reading man page is just picking my interest, but we'll continue. I will read that later. <laughs> okay, next in the news roundup, we have a um, Bastille template at Guard Home. Uh, this is on bastillebsd.org. AdGuard Home is a network-wide software for blocking ads and tracking. Um, Bastille is an open source system for automating deployment and managing containerized applications on FreeBSD. Bastille is more than just lightweight containers for FreeBSD. The template command allows you to automatically deploy a wide range of software. This post begins a series highlighting examples of deploying popular applications using Bastille and FreeBSD. We begin the series with something I run on my home lab. I run three instances, instances if I'm honest, a network-wide service for blocking ads and online tracking, AdGuard Home. AdGuard Home provides a privacy-focused DNS server in your home. It's in the name. Um, 
in your home network, giving you network-wide blocking of ads and tracking. This means ad blocking for your phones, laptops, desktops, TVs, and of any other internet-connected device in your home all in one place. No apps to install or browser plugins to update. Simply point everything to the AdGuard home servers and you're done. As I had mentioned, I run three of these instances in my home lab supporting 50 devices. The dashboard results have been enlightening in my understanding of DNS behavior on my network. Who knew the streaming device connected to my TV would be a top offender? Mm -hmm. If you'd like to run AdGuard Home with Bastille, run the following steps. Bastille, bootstrap, and then the link to the AdGuard Home. Um, yeah, that, that does it. That's basically it. Um, there's an AdGuard, there's a Bastille template command as well, um, but I think you could go try it. Usage. Now that the container is running, you can access a service through the host machine. Using the redirected ports on TCP slash 80 and UDP slash 53, we can now point to the, the host system IP address and access the container service. In this example, the IP of the host machine is 192.168.86.2. Entering that IP in my browser will show the AdGuard home login page. The template sets the default username to AdGuard and the, and the password to Bastille BSD with all the B's capital. Changing the password is done by editing adguardhome.yaml located alongside the main AdGuard binary. No AdGuard home service. Note, stop the AdGuard home service before making changes to the configuration. Thanks. That was written by Christer Edwards in 2021. Um, but I think it probably still applies to Bastille today. Oh, yes, it does. Uh, I've tried it myself and wrote up the experience in a future FreeBSD journal article. So I'm happily uh, blocking ads and they keep growing <laughs> but uh this is yet another way how you can quickly get something running using the best tea templates um well this episode is really packed with good stuff that you can set up on your own like this next one how to restrict access by geographical location on freebsd by Herr bischoff uh, uh, that i featured last episode and he has good stuff in his archive so we'll pick from there what we like best um this one uh, has geographical location access restrictions for nginx and in their setups this is mostly used to secure a backend login when a client doesn't have access to a static ip yet will only ever access the administration from within a certain geographical boundary usually a country start by either configuring the port to add the http underscore goip2 option lightweight or install the wwnginx-full package, which installs just about everything, and the kitchen sink, Java, FFmpeg, what have you. So that's done. Uh, we'd like to automatically update GOIP database, so they do package install GOIP update. The package info is a bit of a mess. Correct, however, is the fact that you need to register a free account with MaxMind, which you can do at the maxmind.com website they linked to. Afterwards, create a license key, also free here, substituting your user ID for it. And at the time of writing, the given location of the configuration file is wrong. The correct location is userlocaletcgip.conf. Okay. Add your user ID and license number there. Then just run. Why do I need... To, oh, oh, yeah. It's not a license if you have to pay for it, right? Uh, but well. Okay. Uh, anyway, add your, add your user ID and license number there. Then just run GUIP update as root finish up there at a simple cron job below is the sample cron job entry that runs gip update on each wednesday at noon so that you get the fresh database and now we're equipped for the nginx configuration so you add a couple modules first the nginx stream module nginx stream gip module and last is the nginx stream gip underscore module 
Okay, then you set those up uh, in two sections. So that's provided. You don't have to uh, think about this yourself. You just say uh, which countries you want to have. Okay, yeah, makes sense. You provide them with yes or no in each country code. And this enables us to, to use an if statement inside a location block, like uh, if dollar allowed country equals no, then return a 403. Okay, check the configuration and restart nginx-t and service nginx restart. The nginx documents contain more information, including a rather interesting use case of choosing the nearest server based on geolocation. Nice. That can be definitely useful if you like uh, only certain locations or know that your users are only coming from Germany, like they're in the German university, for example. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, for this wonderful article, I hope more comes through. I got I clicked on the colophon page and was reading that and got distracted. Um, <laughs> BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated. So the band then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. And this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. We do the show, but we couldn't do it without you. Uh, without yeah. you, we would just be talking into microphones by ourselves and wondering why the air quality sensor in here and I was red. I don't know why it's red. <laughs> Never read before. Open um, a window, maybe? Yeah, it's because the window's closed because it's so cold. Um, <laughs> when you say cold. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's like 16 degrees. Um, we couldn't do this podcast without you. And to help us keep going, you you love the people like to send us feedback. And the first piece of feedback we have today is from Chris. And Chris writes, big fan of the show. Thanks, Chris. I'm a big fan of feedback. Uh, I've been using make-target-arch-arm-v7-j32 for a long time to build world and kernel. And this has worked fantastically well. I love FreeBSD. I love FreeBSD too. On my... Why are you doing on my 16 core AMD 5959X machine? Ah, uh, okay, maybe it's got hyperthreads. It's cross compiling, right? Yeah, but it's it's the, the 32 and the 16 are not the same number. I, I, using syscl um, uh, is the right number to stick in there. It doesn't seem to speed things up by going above that. Um, yeah. On my 16 core AMD 5959X machine, I'd like one of those, but I don't have those. Uh, with a fast SSD, I can build world in about 10 minutes and a kernel in maybe 60 seconds. I can do a kernel in 60 No. And in 60 seconds. I'm now at the point where I'd like to cross build a KLD, so a kernel module, for a kernel driver out of the tree. When I use the same syntax in my KLD directory, it doesn't produce a workable KLD but building from the exact same directory natively works fine. 
Obviously, I'd prefer to cross-build since my AMD box is far faster than my dual ARM Cortex-A9 embedded board. Any suggestions? Using make build env target arch equals armv7 and trying to build the KLD didn't seem to fare any better. Um, you might not be creating the build environment correctly. Um, you might also need to set target as well as target arch, which is the main things I've thought about. Um, for build env, you need to have done um, you need to have done make kernel toolchain with the right toolchain, so the build environment can inherit it. And so that might be what you're missing. You might be missing a toolchain which can build this build with this target architecture in the directory structure you need because you're in a different place from user source. If you've always a way you could check this is if you can clean the tree and then just do a build kernel, it will probably fail. The world phase will build the kernel toolchain for you. So it checks if the toolchain is there, uh, but the kernel phase won't. Um, so this is what you could look into. Um, but if not, I'd love to hear what else to try. Because this, this is, yeah, I just read this just before we started recording. Um, I've, I had no idea that this was the solution there. I, I wouldn't have known. <laughs> the only cross-compiling that I did was recently with Poudrière, where you can say build this package for my Raspberry yeah. Pi. Poudrière be doing all the hard work for you. But yeah, but he wants to build the system itself, world and kernel. But it's just it's just a kernel module. Um, just yeah, it's a kernel true. module rather than the the entire kernel. And so when you do build world, it makes sure the toolchain is in place correctly. But the kernel stage doesn't do that. Um, but if you always build the kernel in a tree you've done build world first, then you won't see this issue. But if you oh. just build a kernel in a clean tree, you might see the same issue come up, and that will tell you need to do build kernel toolchain. And you definitely need the toolchain to build a kernel module. So I, I think that's probably it. Right in if it doesn't work, and we'll try something else. Um, if you could share what the module is, I don't know if you can, um, hmm. then that would also help us figure it out because then someone else could try it. But I, I would try that. Thanks, yeah, Chris. Or in general, a kernel module for that architecture. Yeah, you could ask in the new Telegram channel we have. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's in there. Not yet. I'm not checking. <laughs> I haven't had time yet. By the time you hear it, I will have joined, but I also might have left. <laughs> <laughs> multiple times it depends on the volume of the channel yeah how loud it is but we'll see it's an experiment um let's look at the next uh feedback which was sent to us to feedback at bsdnow.tv by the way uh matthew and uh, matthew writes what is the history behind the user groups on unix like systems ah groups like wheel operator video etc where did the name wheel come from why do users need to be in video to start x.org what are some of the other default user groups you'll typically find on a Unix-like system? What are some of the more sophisticated users for user groups? So Wheel, if you look up Wheel Computing on Wikipedia, um, in Unix operating systems, the term Wheel refers to a user account with the Wheel bit, a system setting that provides additional special system privileges that empower a user to execute restricted commands that an ordering user cannot access. The term Wheel was first applied to computer user privileges after the introduction of the Tenix operating system, later distributed under the name TOPS20 in the 60s and 70s. The term was derived from the slang phrase big wheel, referring to a person with great power or influence. In the 80s, the term was imported into Unix culture due to the migration of operating system developers from Tenix TOPS20 to Unix. 
We'll group. Modern Unix systems generally use user groups as a security protocol to control access privileges. The wheel group is a special user group used on some Unix systems, mostly BSD systems, citation needed, uh, to control... I think somebody could find that citation now. Oh, is the podcast <laughs> of me discussing with a citation valid for Wikipedia? To control access to the SU or pseudo command, which allows the user to masquerade as another user, usually the super user. Debian-like operating systems create a group called pseudo with the purpose of that similar to wheel. Yeah, and there's one more section in the Wikipedia page that you can go and read yourself. Yeah, that's what Wheel came from. Um, operator is like Wheel, but different, I think. Um, operator I think is it allows you to restart? So I, yeah, it allows you to do some things, but not yeah. everything. So if you're in Wheel, you can um, SU if you know the root, if you know, if you're in the Wheel group and you know the root password, you can then elevate to root. Um, mm -hmm. There's probably some other things. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to get stuff wrong. Video allows you to use video devices, which might sound like a really sarcastic answer, but it's required because modern software needs to be able to write directly into the um, memory devices. Um, modern old okay. software like Xorg needs to be able to write directly from user space into the memory regions of the device driver. So basically it saves round trips through other systems, so it lowers latency. Uh, so you need to be in a group to do that because you don't just want to let everyone write through. Benedict can tell you about other groups. I don't have anything in my head now. Yeah. If you have like a, a small project group, then you would create a group so that every member of this group can access the same files and directories without, oh, Sally needs this access, but also John and Jack and Jill. So having a group where you put them all in and as more people add get added to that group, you don't have to rechange all the permissions. And that's why you, it's easier to maintain a group rather than giving individual people access because more people, more management, more administrative work. That's what the groups are for. And the system groups, as uh, Tom explained, give you certain system uh, privileges or accesses. So if you're in that group, you may use these. Uh, if not, then uh, you, you can't. And some systems or services shouldn't be in there for security reasons. And um, some people don't need to have that, right? Not everyone needs to have access to the graphics driver but if you're a regular user then you definitely would need that if you want to start x i've been using wayland recently on my laptop and set it up uh, with sway and i was quite uh, impressed by the speed and kind of can see myself migrating that from i3 uh, which is fairly similar so wayland but you similar you have similar setups to do you need to push your user into the video group if it's not there already to use Wayland as well. So there's no difference between Xorg and Wayland in that regard. Apparently Xorg's dead. So so yeah. Yeah, anyway, more or less. That, but that, that things keep around for a long time, as we know. <laughs> BSD is dead. Forever. <laughs> uh, and that's for 30 years and counting. Um, yeah, that's uh, the feedback that we have for you this week. Thanks to everyone who sent it. Uh, everyone also who gave us feedback to our special 512 episode or provided uh, links that we should cover in the episodes this or past ones or future ones that we haven't recorded yet so all good to have because why should we scour the web for all the BSD news where you might find them easier uh, anything else no I'm okay. good done <laughs> we'll leave you with that <laughs> And we're just another week away with another episode for you on your commute or on your free hour after work or during work. I'm not sure if this is a good idea. Uh, wherever you listen to us, thank you and stay tuned for our next week's episode.